Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 69th episode of the Exploring Antinatalism podcast, a podcast all about the subject of antinatalism created by antinatalists. My name is Amanda Oldfans-Sukunik, formerly known as Federal Films on YouTube, and today I'm speaking with reader in philosophy at the School of Philosophy, Theology, and Religion at the University of Birmingham, and author of the papers Better No Longer to Be, The Harm of Continued Existence, and Better to Return Whence We Came, Emma Sullivan Bissett. Welcome to the Exploring Antinatalism podcast, Emma. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. It's lovely to have you. Uh, and welcome back, Daily Negativity. Daily Negativity is, of course, an alum of the Exploring Antinatalism podcast. And anybody who wishes can hear our interview together along with uh, ex-co-host Mark J. Maharaj uh, in episode 21. Highly recommended. Welcome, Daily. Yeah, thanks, Amanda. Absolutely. Um, Emma, it is a great pleasure to have you with us today. You are, of course, the author of two papers on antinatalism, one from 2012 called Better No Longer to Be the Harm of Continued Existence, as well as a much more recent paper released earlier this year, in fact, by the name of Better to Return Whence We Came. Within both of these papers, you defend a very controversial claim that antinatalism, specifically Benatarian antinatalism, implies pro-mortalism, something which Benatar has long denied, uh, but a subject which nonetheless has taken on a life of its own uh, and come to have great importance uh, within the antinatalist community. So excited to speak with you all about all of this today. Uh, But first, a few questions I ask some version of to all my guests, starting with who is Emma Sullivan Bisson. Um, okay, so I'm a British philosopher I'm based at the University of Birmingham in the UK. Uh, my main work is actually not in procreative ethics. Um, I work actually primarily in the philosophy of mind and psychology. Um, so I'm interested in the nature of belief, including delusional belief and also biological approaches to what are typically taken to be normative questions in the philosophy of mind. Um, And I'm also, as of July this year, a mother to a baby boy, which is probably the most all-encompassing component of my identity right now. And maybe not forever, but (laughs) at least for now, that's kind of who I am. Thank you. Uh, Emma, why are you or are you not an antinatalist? Yeah, so this question is genuinely the source of deep philosophical conflict for me. Um, So I'm a huge fan of Benatar's work on this topic. I find his arguments incredibly persuasive. Um, In fact, when I return to his work, as I often do, um, because I think he's a wonderful writer, I have a kind of antinatalist conversion each time. Um, I really think the case just couldn't be put any better. On the other hand, (laughs) I go and read people like Michael Michael Horskeller and Thaddeus Metz, and then I sort of find myself slightly shaken out of that conviction a little bit. Um, And so the truth is, I just don't know. Um, And as I say, this topic isn't my main area of research. And so sometimes I feel like a bit of an outsider looking in. But there's kind of a sense in which there's something comforting about that, because this has become a kind of personal issue for me recently with the birth of my child. And so I very much like antinatalism to be wrong, (laughs) or at least I'd very much like it not to be the case that I've kind of irreparably harmed somebody by dragging them into the hellfire that is human existence with you know very little in the way of redeeming qualities um so I'd like the more optimistic appraisals that you find in people like Michael Horskeller and Thaddeus Metz to have something going for it uh so I'm afraid the answer is I'm just not sure um so this isn't my main area much as I find it fascinating and also because I've got this kind of recent skin in the game 
I wonder whether that's going to be distorting any reasoned judgments that I might be able to come to regarding the issue. So um, as a philosopher of psychology, I'm like really sensitive to the fact that all sorts of things might be affecting my judgment. So um, I don't know is the answer, actually. That's a very fair and very candid answer. Thank you so much. Um, well, you know, I, I will say there are many antenatalist parents. You know, it's not yeah. it's not it's not an entirely uh, unheard of circumstance, uh, but a very difficult one to be in. And I I, I do you know I, I sympathize with with your position. Um, I mean, I, I and yeah, and I didn't realize that you were such a fan of of, of Benatar's work. Mm. Um, may I ask a little bit more detail of like what? specifically in the work of Michael Hauskeller, Hauskeller and uh, Thaddeus Metz, you know, brings you to some other kind of conclusion. You know? Yeah, so I'm going from a very hazy memory here, but I think Michael um, says some stuff about uh, the subjective appraisals of one's life. And I, I think Benatar wants to say that, you know, we're, we're just getting it wrong, right? There are all sorts of cognitive biases which explain why we come to these judgments and we're, and we're getting things wrong about that. And I I remember in Michael's paper, he talks about how Benatar doesn't really have the legitimacy to say something like that. You know, it's okay to be a kind of cheery optimist about life and we needn't say that that's because there are various cognitive biases. And he sort of, I think he digs deep into the empirical work that Benatar appeals to and says that it doesn't show what. Um, so, so that was quite good, I thought. And um, Thaddeus Metz, I, my memory of, of his position, uh, my most recent memory has come from your podcast, your conversation with him, where he talks about um, kind of other virtues in life which aren't given proper recognition by Benatar when he talks about kind of pleasures and pains or harms and benefits. He talks about um, kind of deeper virtues of life and talks about his sons. And um, I found all that quite compelling as well. So you know, when I when I listen to people like that, I'm like, oh, okay, I, I can I sort of feel myself pulling away from antinatalism again, but I go back to Benatar and, you know, as I've said, I, I don't think anyone can put the point better. It's extremely compelling. So that's why I, I find myself kind of unsure what to think in the end. Yeah, excellent. I mean, thank you for, you know, uh, sharing with us that push and pull towards and, and, mm. and away from antinatalism. It's a unique experience. Thank you. Um, may I also ask, why are you or are you not a pro-mortalist? Uh, okay, so this is easier. So <laughs> I do have a kind of settled position on this. So I am only a pro-mortalist to the extent that I'm an antinatalist, right? Because I think that you get pro-mortalism from antinatalism. So in those moments where I'm compelled to believe compassionate antinatalism is the right view, then I think I'm a pro-mortalist as well. Um, but actually, and, and maybe I'll, I'll think more today, I've never thought sort of seriously about pro-mortalism as an independent position rather than one that follows from antinatalism um, and as an independent position I don't recoil from it seems to me it could well be true um, I guess I just need to think about the arguments in its favour in order to tell you whether I find it an attractive kind of standalone view so the question of whether I'm a pro-mortalist is kind of parasitic on the answer the question of whether I'm an antinatalist right so if, if yes, antinatalism, then yes, pro-mortalism, but kind of not really thought about it as an independent view yet. Okay, fascinating. Um, well, connected to that, uh, I'm just curious, have you ever um, actually spoken to an antinatalist pro-mortalist or, or pro-mortalist as, as a standalone? So so daily negativity here is a pro-mortalist. I don't know, Daly, can you, you'll have to tell us, would you consider yourself a pro-mortalist independent of your antinatalism or um, how do you feel they, they are connected? Right. Um, I think they're both, uh, both views are sort of based on 
my pessimistic view of life. So the antinatalism is based on that and also the pro-mortalism. And maybe I'll say more about this later, but um, essentially I just, the way that I derive my pro-mortalist view is just by really just combining, you know, deprivationism, which is a view about death with a pessimistic view of life. And uh, that's kind of all it is for me. <laughs> um, so the connection is just that they're both uh, based on this pessimistic view. Yeah, excellent. All right, thank you for sharing that uh, daily. Um, how did you originally get interested in writing about the subjects of both antinatalism and promortalism, Emma? Uh, this is a really boring answer. Um, I read Benatar, right? And I was like, well, and so I was an undergraduate at the University of York and the very first paper set in my ethics module was Benatar's Why It's Better Never to Come Into Existence. And I was 18 at the time and I read that. <laughs> and I was really taken by it. I found it um, really exciting actually and compelling. And I guess it just stayed with me as I progressed through my studies. And then um, I went to South Africa for a postgraduate conference when I was doing my PhD and I met Benatar at another event that I was attending then. Um, and I had a quick chat with him and I was quite excited to meet him because I remembered oh, I read this paper five years ago and I really loved it. And then he told me that he had this book. Um, and so I went home, I read the book, thought it was excellent. And then the opportunity came up to write about it. So I, I just sort of took that opportunity because I, I found it also interesting. Um, as for pro-mortalism, I don't remember exactly how we settled on that on the first paper, but I can guess, thinking about my own psychology, I can guess it went something like this. Um, I'm quite attracted to Epicureanism about death, which is the view that death doesn't harm she who dies. And I was unsatisfied with Benatar's treatment of it in the 2006 book. So it seemed to me that if Benatar's asymmetry and Epicureanism were true, we'd arrive fairly straightforwardly at pro-mortalism. And so my papers have been in part devoted to exploring that connection. Excellent. Okay, thank you for your window into that. And I, I didn't realize that you'd been engaging with Benatar since the, the 1997 uh, paper. So yeah, you've been, you've, been, you've been engaging with this for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. um, you've spoken a little bit about this already, but if, if, you, if you care to give some more details, I'd love to, uh, if you could tell us a little bit more about your, your other areas of research. Yeah, sure. Um, so as I said, I'm a philosopher of mind and psychology, and much of my work to date has focused on um, the nature of belief and its relationship to truth. And more recently, I've been leading two externally funded projects, so one on delusional belief and one on conspiracy belief. And um, the project on delusion is the bigger one, so maybe I'll just I'll say a couple of sentences about that. You tell me if I'm going on too long. Um, so the project on delusion, so clinical delusions are typically taken to be bizarre beliefs, which are irresponsive to counter evidence. So, you know, beliefs like my husband is an imposter or I am dead or the CIA are tracking me or whatever it is. So my work explores how it is that folk come to hold beliefs like these. Um, and most people in the debate agree that the highly anomalous experiences or hallucinations, for example, that people with delusions have are a key ingredient in explaining like why they come to believe as they do. But the orthodoxy in philosophy and psychology is to say that there's this additional ingredient, biased or deficient reasoning capacities. Um, and together with my co-investigator, Professor Paul Nordoff at the University of York, we're challenging that claim. And we're arguing instead that people with delusions, they reason in a perfectly normal way, not rational necessarily, but a normal way. So we don't need to posit this kind of clinical irrationality. 
Um, and in my other work, I'm interested in the nature of other psychological phenomena, so like implicit bias, confabulation, conspiratorial ideation, and so on. Amazing. So, so a, a, a study of the American uh, right wing, I, I, on some <laughs> right. level, I imagine, yeah, 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 and on yeah. and all that. Yeah, I'm sure that's some right. of that. All that stuff life. comes up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Excellent. That's a fascinating area of research. A very important. Yeah. Um, outside of Wikipedia, the word antinatalism is still not included in or defined by any dictionary in the world in any language. I have twice now campaigned to have the word added into the Oxford English Dictionary to no avail. And in addition to this, even the Wikipedia definition keeps changing. So Emma, do you have any feelings on how antinatalism should be defined? Yeah, so I've heard you talk about this on earlier podcasts, and I always thought, God, that's super interesting, because of course, antinatalism is massively controversial. But here I am naively thinking, the definition's not controversial, right? We can all settle on that. Um, so it's really interesting that that's the thing that has comes with its own controversy. So I've always just understood it as the view that you know, one ought not to procreate, full stop, that's the view, right? And then you can have various arguments for that claim, which would determine the kind of antinatalist you are. So, you know, we can distinguish at least two kind of compassion-based antinatalism, favoured by Benatar, also some risk people, and then ecological antinatalism, motivated by concern for the environment and the harm done by creating more life. But I think both of those positions should count, right, as antinatalists, right? They both say, you shouldn't do this, right? But I think the compassion-based one sort of seems to me less hostage to contingent factors, right? So I can imagine that if you're a compassion-based antinatalist, you might not think there's anything we could plausibly do to make it morally permissible to procreate because, you know, it's just part of the nature of, of life that um, life's going to be awful in certain kinds of ways, where I guess if you're an ecological antinatalist, you might be moved from your position Right. If we had certain climate policies or if we colonize other planets such that we weren't harming you know, our environment anymore. So I think that both of those count as antinatalism because they both say you shouldn't procreate. Um, but I think we should be open to various ways of getting to that conclusion and various strengths. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Thank you for your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's uh, and it's and it's it's um, it's it, nowhere else is it more controversial than amongst antinatalists. I mean, we right. cannot we cannot agree on what this thing means. As you said, there's conditional antinatalism, there's right. universal antinatalism, there's sentiocentric antinatalism, there's anthropocentric antinatalism. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. Do you feel and and uh, daily? Please feel free to jump in on on this point. Certainly. I mean, do you feel that? given that you believe that pro-mortalism derives from antinatalism, that needs to be part of its definition on some level? I think that it only comes from certain kinds of antinatalism. So I guess I wouldn't, I've never thought about this, so this is kind of fresh. I guess I wouldn't think that pro-mortalism would follow from an ecological antinatalism, right? Because if that's kind of concerned with the environment and not concerned with, you know, what's better for human beings, then it seems to me that you wouldn't necessarily get to pro-mortalism from there, whereas a compassion-based is, is much more linked in my mind, I think. That's a really good point, and I am not sure. I mean, one of the, um, one of the most famous forms of, of environmentalist pre-antinatalism, as I call it, is uh, the work of, of um, Chris Corda of the, uh, the, the Church of Euthanasia, and they're like a, they're like a Dadaist art movement. Um, but they were also very heavily 
antinatalist before there was a word for it, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and Chris is a, is a, like a, a techno musician. And the most famous song that he produced around that time when they were really popular was save the planet, kill yourself. <laughs> so maybe there is a, so if they, but it all, no, the, the other part of this is how are we defining pro-mortalism? And we'll get right, into that in a right. second. Exactly. Yeah. So they're both a bit of a, a bit of a mess, aren't they? No, that, that's a good point, actually. Uh, if you think that the most, yeah, the most important thing is kind of saving the planet, then you might think that leads to pro-mortalism if you think that, you know, all human existence is, is harmful to the planet. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. It's fascinating, fascinating. Um, Emma, are you aware that some actually credit you with the creation of the term pro-mortalism? Um, I do know of, of, of one earlier instance where Benatar uses it. There might be others. I don't know. I don't claim to be any kind of expert on the history of the term pro-mortalism, um, but, but he uses it in a different way. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but do you believe that you coined the term either way? And what do you know about the history of this word? No, right. So here's some time for some intellectual humility. No, right. I was not, I was not aware of that. I'd be really interested to know who on earth thinks that that was mine because that credit is entirely misplaced. Um, I don't believe that I coined the term, but you know, it's a mystery to me where I first picked it up. Um, I wish I had access to that piece of intellectual autobiography because I don't know where I got it from either. Um, but I do know that I'm not responsible for the term and, um, I don't know anything of its history either. Okay. Fascinating. Well, I will say that I, learned that because of issue three of antinatalism magazine um and this was written by uh andreas moss um and that and he says that in in this book and he um i i I certainly will not you know now that i need it i won't be able to find it but he says that you were responding to something elizabeth Harmon said uh and she didn't use the term but anyway he thinks that 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 it originates from you and and now we know that that's that's not very kind of him (laughs) no i don't think so i don't think so anyway um i was curious also if you could tell us a little bit about how you think pro-mortalism should be defined uh but before you answer that i want to give a a quick peek into some examples of how other people appear to be defining it so david benatar does in fact use the term in better never to have been he says it when uh in a discussion of two different types of extinction in chapter six, when he's making a distinction between killing extinction and dying extinction. So that quote from page 196 is, we're antinatalists to become pro-mortalist and embark on a species-side program of killing humans, their actions uh, would be plagued by moral problems that would not be faced by dying extinction. So it's really interesting, this particular quote, because it's using the word pro-mortalism in a way that most pro-mortalists never use it, which is in relation to killing, but we'll, we'll get to that in just a second. Christopher Belshaw, who you know, uh, and who was a guest on the podcast in episode uh, 34, which seems like the wrong number, but we'll go with it. Um, so aside from you, I don't know which of you made the claim first, truthfully, but he was one of the first people to make this claim about pro-mortalism uh, and, and Benatar. Um, and in, 2000, in 2012, uh, and when Mark J. Maharaj and I interviewed him again on episode 30, 34, we asked him how he would define the term. And he just said that it was for death, mm-hmm. which is an incredibly broad uh, definition of the term. Uh, and you, Daily Negativity, when Mark and I interviewed you on episode 21, um, you define the term as meaning death is good for the one that dies. And please let us know if, if that interpretation has changed at all. Daily, did you, did you pick that definition up 
from someplace else or is that entirely your own invent, invented definition of the term? Um, I think I did pick up the phrase for the one who dies somewhere. I can't remember. It might have been from, it must have been from a paper that I read. I don't think it was Benatar, but um, it might have been in one of Benatar's books that, that, that uh, Benatar edited. Um, I forget the name of the book, but yeah. So the phrase for the one who dies, um, I, I think I did pick that up somewhere, but it made, made, made a lot of sense to me. You know, it's to me, it is about, you know, it's, it's not about how one's death affects others or, you know, um, the process of dying or it, it is really, for me, it's, it's about death itself and uh, for the one that dies. Um, so that's, that's still basically how I understand it. Okay, excellent. Thank you for that. Um, so given all of these interpretations and these different versions of the definition, I'm curious again to know uh, how you, Emma, would add to this with your own definition. Yeah, um, I think this is a really important question. I think I say a bit about this in my recent paper. So the way I've understood it is that it's better to cease to exist. But I think it's worth being really careful because I think there's another kind of view which would also be properly called pro-mortalism, which is the view that ceasing to exist is rationally required, right? Um, and I think those are very different positions, right? Because I think plausibly enough, there's a gap between something being best for me and it being rationally required for me to pursue that thing, right? So it might be best for me to run five times a week rather than one. Um, but I don't think we'd say that I'm sort of rationally required to run five times a week or that I'd behave in irrationally if I failed to run five times a week. Um, I'm not sure, maybe some folk would, would deny the gap between what's what's best and what's rationally required, but I, I find that gap plausibly enough, plausible enough. Um, so the kind of primordialism that I think is a kind of natural consequence of compassion-based antinatalism is the primordialism which talks about what's better, not what's rationally required. So I don't wanna say that, you know, 8 million humans or at least the subset of those with the relevant capacities are engaging in mass irrationality and choosing to continue to exist, right? So it can be best without it being rationally required. I think they're both pro-mortalism, but I think we should distinguish them. Okay, excellent. I think I ha I think, I think we will come to find that maybe I perhaps have my own version of what you just said. We'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, Emma, do you believe that it might be possible that pro-mortalism has become a kind of umbrella term to, can meet, to mean quite a lot of, of different things. When I first started hearing about it a lot, it was being used as kind of a pejorative term for something called an ephilist, uh, which is kind of imagine a negative utilitarian who would press the red button, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then there, there's, a, there's a way that people were using it um, it's just all become a bit of a mess, as, as, as we said. Um, so, so why do you think that might be? And if promortalism is an umbrella term, what exactly might it be an umbrella term for? Yeah, I, I think that's kind of totally possible that it's become a term in that way. And as I just said, I think there are at least two ways that, you know, even I think about it as a, as a lone kind of thinker. But I, I do think it's appropriate to describe both kinds of position as promortalist. It actually seems to me that what unites all of the ways that one might be a pro-mortalist is, as Chris Belshaw says, right, pro-death. Now, we can add all these nuances, of course, right? It's not to say that pro-mortalism is this crude view, but I think that that's, that's the kind of foundation, that's the building block. Then there can be particular ways the position might be crafted around that key point. And so death might be thought of as kind of better for the person who dies. That's the kind of pro-mortalism I work with, or as good for them, which is 
what daily negativity works with or is rationally required and so on. But it, it seems to me that it, it's kind of sensible to think it's for death and then we can kind of, you know, add our additional claims around that key point. Yeah, I think you're right. I, th- I, th- I think mm. that that is the definition that keeps coming to my mind is mm. this very broad uh, Christopher Belshaw definition. Um, moving away from that just slightly for uh, for a period of time. I mean, how do you feel antinatalism intersects, if at all, with other social and ethical issues such as atheism, the right to die and veganism? Right. OK, so I'll take those one at a time. Um, so I think antinatalism is compatible with atheism, but I also think you could be an antinatalist theist, right? So now if you're a compassion-based antinatalist, you might well have some questions for God, right? So why have you let all this suffering happen to living things? But that wouldn't be a particularly novel thought, right? It's one which constitutes um, the extremely thoroughly discussed problem of evil in the philosophy of religion. Um, so that's something people have wondered about independently of antinatalism. So I think antinatalism could be combined with both theism and atheism it seems to me um the right to die i think antinatalism insofar as it's motivated by considerations about existence being a grievous harm is a kind of natural bedfellow of right to die proponents um and indeed it might kind of widen the set of folk to whom that right might apply right so Imagine if you had a position which said something like, you know, um, you have the right to die when your life has become burdensome or horrific, right? And before you read kind of Bentai, you think, right, well, maybe that's people with terminal illnesses or sufficiently debilitating health conditions. But then you go and read Benatar and you go, oh, it's all of us actually, right? <laughs> Turns out all of our lives meet the bar of being sufficiently burdensome. And if you take that seriously, you might take it that kind of any conditions relating to life being sufficiently burdensome for some right to kick in, you might think that that's met by many, many more lives than might originally be thought. So I think they're kind of natural allies. Although, um, you know, I'm a philosopher, right? So I'm looking for the coherence of various positions. I can see the coherence of a position which said that compassion-based antinatalism is true, all human lives are horrific, but you don't have the right to die, right? Now, I don't know enough about the topic to kind of fill in those details, but it seems to me that that could be coherent, right? And you might have somebody who says that the absence of that right is one of the compounding factors of the horrendousness of existence, right? It's so bad, but you don't have this right to die, and that's kind of what makes it worse. So I I think that antinatalism is compatible with right to die, but also kind of the opposite view. Um, And then you asked me about veganism. Um, I think veganism is much more tightly aligned with antinatalism. Um, of both compassion and ecological varieties. It's hard to see how those antinatalisms wouldn't have veganism as a natural ally, given the environmental consequences of rearing animals, and also given that human, uh, sorry, animal lives are presumably pretty horrific too. Um, Benatar certainly thinks that, I think. So if you wanted to consistently be an antinatalist without thinking that you at least ought to be a vegan, I think you'd need to also say, you know, that animals don't suffer or that their suffering isn't morally relevant or that it's only permissible to eat roadkill or whatever. Um, And for what it's worth, I think the first two of those claims are wildly implausible. So I I think that if you're an antinatalist, you probably ought to be a vegan, at least in theory. Yeah. Excellent, excellent uh, answers. Thank you so much for that. Yes, I've been a vegan for six years uh, strong. I believe I believe daily is as well. Um, uh, Yeah, no, thank you so much for that. 
Um, in addition to being a philosophical position, antinatalism over the last 10 years or so has become a social movement as well. Um, what's your general exposure to this side of, of the philosophy as, as social movement? And, and what's your opinion of, the, of this side of antinatalism? Um, yeah, my general exposure to the social movement is constituted entirely by my exposure to this podcast, um, so <laughs> which I've enjoyed a lot. Excellent. I've listened to quite a few episodes. And, um, Thank you so much. I, yeah, I didn't know that there was this this movement. Um, my opinion of the movement is that if antinatalism is true, the stakes are so high, and so we better have some activism, right? Um, right. In general, I think that, you know, you might take a range of positions on the importance of philosophical research, so whether it matters, whether it should matter, but it seems to me that the philosophical position of antinatalism is of profound importance. Um, there's so much on the line. Um, so imagine, right, as I'm sure you do, that Benatar's correct, uh, that to bring someone into existence is to irredeemably harm them, that all lives are horrendous and, you know, put in some extra premises, you get to the view that, you know, you ought not procreate. Now, if that's true, that would be a remarkable conclusion to have reached. And it seems to me that people should probably know about it. Um, and that activism rather than academia might be the better route to kind of spread in that knowledge. Uh, but I don't know if I see the future of antinatalism as something more than a kind of purely intellectual movement. So I don't know that there's going to be any kind of grand persuasion. So I'm pessimistic or optimistic, depending on your point of view, um, about the prospects for antinatalism activism succeeding. If your goal is to prevent procreation rather than to kind of benignly spread the word. So, you know, some folks might abstain from procreating on the grounds of philosophical argument, but my sense is, I could be wrong, kind of not so as you'd notice. I'd be surprised if the activism kind of had that kind of effect. Yeah, I think that's a, a perfectly fair assessment. I don't know. I really don't. You know, right. um, you, you know, just just to give an example, I mean, antinatalist activism as it as it's exists right it's so new like it's such mm -hmm. a it's such a new you know in 2019 vice wanted to make a documentary about british antinatalism and they had to scrap the project because there was no british antinatalism as oh, far wow. as as far as, i mean there was some academia going on as you well know but mm -hmm. no street activism no right. nothing nothing resembling traditional activism that's completely changed in, in, in just a couple of years. Um, so mm -hmm. it's still very much in its infancy. Who knows where it's going? Who knows what it will be able to sure. achieve? Um, I do think, um, based on what, you know, you just said that the, 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 the peanut butter and jelly combination of the academia and the, the, the activism, I mean, that's, 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 that's the sandwich we're trying to find. I think, I think that's the only yeah, way I mean, forward. You're talking yeah. to a British person who wouldn't put those two things together. There, so. uh, yeah, no, no. Uh, yeah. And I realize those are, those are, it's a troubling combination, but um, from my no, perspective. I, I, anyway. I mean the peanut butter and the jelly. Not oh, the, oh, 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 right. that's, <laughs> okay. that's not a thing we do here. <laughs> no. That's so funny. Um, okay. Well, th thank you so much for your thoughts on that. Um, one last question before we move on to your papers. Um, outside of Benatar, have you done much research into other antinatalist thinkers uh, and other arguments for antinatalism, sorry, such as consent and risk? Yeah, only a little. So when I was writing um, Better Return, once we came, I, I read 
Schifrin and Singh on consent. And I remember reading um, Magnuson's paper on risk in the special issue, but I am extremely hazy on the details of all of these positions. Um, so I guess my answer is kind of not really, but very much open to it insofar as I find this kind of all very fascinating. All right. Um, so moving on, uh, Emma, we'd love to talk to you a little bit about your first paper on the subject of antinatalism and promortalism, the uh, 2012 collaborative uh, effort between you and Mr. Rafe McGregor, uh, and yourself entitled Better uh, No Longer to Be, The Harm of Continued Existence. Um, may I begin by reading out the abstract for this piece? Mm -hmm, sure. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Abstract. David Benatar argues that coming into existence is always a harm, and that for all of us unfortunate enough to have come into existence, it would be better to never have come to be. We contend that if one accepts Benatar's argument for the asymmetry between the presence of and absence of pleasure and pain and the poor quality of life, uh, one must also accept that suicide is preferable to continued existence and that his view therefore implies both promortalism, antinatalism and promortalism, pardon me. This inclusion has been argued um, for by Elizabeth Harmon. She takes it that Benatar claims that our lives are awful. It follows that we would be better to kill ourselves, uh, Harmon, 2009. Um, though we agree that with Harmon's conclusion, we think that her argument is too quick and that Benatar's argument for non-promortalism uh, deserve more serious consideration than she gives them. We make our case using a uh, tripartite structure. Right. We start by examining the prima facie case for the claim that pro-mortalism follows from Benatar's position, presenting his response to the contrary and furthering the dialect by showing that Benatar's position is not just that coming into existence is a harm, but that existence itself is a harm. That we then look at Benatar's treatment of the Epicurean line, which is important for him as it undermines his anti-death argument for non-promortalism. We demonstrate that he fails to address the concerns that the Epicurean line raises and that he cannot therefore use the harm of death as an argument for non-promortalism. Finally, we turn to Benatar's pro-life argument for non-promortalism built upon his notion of interest and argue that while the interest in continued existence may indeed have moral relevance, it is almost always irrational. Given that neither Benatar's anti-death or pro-life arguments for non-promortalism work, we conclude that pro-mortalism follows from his antinatalism. As such, if it is always better never to have been, then it is better no longer to be. First off, the most basic of questions, what led to the writing of this paper? Uh, yeah, so as I said earlier, I read Benatar's Better Never to Have Been as a graduate student. Um, and as it as it happened, soon after I did, Thaddeus Metz issued a call for papers for a special issue of um, the South African Journal of Philosophy on Benatar's antinatalism. And so together with Rafe, we submitted an abstract which was accepted for presentation at the workshop on antinatalism. And, and then that led to our co-authored paper. So we presented it there, got some feedback kind of made some adjustments and then that was published the following year. Okay, excellent. Um, so I have I have a, I have a number of, uh, <laughs> of of sort of loose, you know, thoughts that this paper inspired. Um, and I, I, I hope that the sort of what I've prepared is is, is all right. I mean, I, I'd like to sort of jump to um, the postscript. Um, and you say that after a presentation of this paper, a distinction was raised between two kinds of promortalism, one which would recommend committing suicide now and another that would recommend doing so later when one's life becomes sufficiently bad. We want to claim that Benatar's antinatalism commits him to the first of these versions of promortalism, but one might think that his position only commits him to the second. And I just wanted to make a quick comment on this and both of you, please feel free to jump in anytime. I'm, I'm personally not sure. 
I, I don't know if there is a real distinction to be made between quick and slow pro-mortalism as it stands in relation specifically to Benatarianism and the asymmetry. Um, I mean, I've, I've, I've gone back and forth on this subject so, so many times. It's, it's been a very difficult puzzle to kind of pull apart. I will say that in looking at the more long-term idea of pro-mortalism, that it would be good to commit suicide later when one's life is sufficiently bad, I guess my question here is what separates this from the right to die movement as a human rights issue? I mean, aren't we now at this time living in a world without that as a human right? And if we were given that right tomorrow, would we even still be calling this pro-mortalism? Like, are we, are we, are we attaching this loaded term to something which, you know, at the minute we're living in, in, a, in, a, in a time where this thing that we should all have a right to decide for ourselves, you know, it, it is, uh, wouldn't this just simply be the freedom to plan for one's life, including one's death? And so, I mean, you've already spoken about sort of the right to die and its relation to antinatalism, but um, I, I find I find it to be a strange and, and, and murky connection between pro-mortalism and the right to die. And, and do you have any thoughts on all that? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I think so. I mean, so the first thing you said was that you kind of weren't sold on the distinction between kind of, um, I think, quick and slow pro-mortalism, you know, and and actually, I'm not sure about that anymore either. So, um, you know, that 2012 paper was a long time ago, and um, I think it's moved on a little bit. Um, and I talk about that in my more recent papers. So Benatar says that it might make more sense for people who are in the better parts of their lives to delay until the worst bits start to occur. And, and I say two things about that, which is that you know, although some features of our predicament vary across time, right? So for some people, um, those features like those relating to bodily discomfort might be more appalling later in life. At least some of the kind of more mundane qualities that make for appalling lives, according to Benta, are kind of present right from the off, right? Um, so even if our lives tend to become worse over time, it seems to me that at any given point that you might like to look at, if you take Benta seriously, they're pretty bad, right? Um, and second, even if our earlier lives are only minimally appalling in terms of quality, right? So we're healthy, we're not the victims of crime or whatever. Even those days are marred by the more kind of, um, by, by those other components of the, of the human predicament, you know? So our lives are always meaningless. We're always gonna die. We're always gonna be annihilated. And so I'm not actually sure anymore that there's much road in distinguishing between quick and slow pro-mortalism as it relates to Benatar's antinatalism. Um, but the right to die stuff. So I guess that I think that the right to die movement needn't be committed to saying that death is better for people. And, and that's why I think it's it's good to distinguish it from pro-mortalism. Whereas I take it pro-mortalism is committed to something like that, to it being better or it being good or it being required. So a view which had it that, you know, you ought to be able to plan the course of your life, including your death, needn't also say, that you know death is better or good or required so I, I do think there is a bit of logical space between those two positions you know I just feel like if we had the right to die there's a bit of what pro-mortalism is that would sort of collapse at that point like with like it just feels that way to me but again I probably am getting a bit lost in the way people define it and and, and the differences in the way people define it and I'm just not sure I'm you know these, these, these are my these are my loose associations <laughs> Oh, well, I guess somebody could, you know, be a, a you know, a, a very strong right to die proponent, but think that death is very, 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 very bad, right? I mean, yeah, I take I it that, that Benatar right. is in that kind of position, right? He's not a pro-mortalist, but he, 
he very much is a right to die person. So, um, but I take it pro-mortalism is, is kind of for death. It says, you know, you should have the right, but also it's a good thing, right? So I, I, that seems to me the difference between the two positions. Okay, I see, I see. Uh, moving on from that though, and, and perhaps we've resolved this, but I'll, I'll keep going. I mean, uh, now looking at, at the idea of quick pro-mortalism, the idea that one should die now, there is an inconvenient part to this that I think inconveniently, but, but you know, is, is just, just true. If your primary goal is to avoid all suffering, and yes, I mean, when the machine is on, we're in harm's way. When the machine is off, we're not in harm's way anymore. That's just a fact. And that's sort of its own inconvenient truth. However, this is where I'm slightly afraid of pro-mortalism. In, in today's context, because most of us simply don't have a great way of ending our lives. Uh, in order to do it now, we would have to do it badly. And I fear that I have lost friends of mine, like Jwoon Hung, uh, you know, who uh, in wishing to be logically consistent with this implied speed of pro-mortalism, you know, made decisions that caused them to die really badly as a result. I mean, Jwoon's death was very impulsive from from all appearances um and and this I, I know for a fact you know benatar would would not condone he perfectly he's perfectly solid in his advocacy for the right to die but he would never advocate that people should do it badly um i'm quite sure that he would say this this is uh you know whatever utility um you have while alive to fight for you know better access to things like the right to die antinatalism and other causes like that's what you should be doing while you're still while you're still here i think that's part of what he would say anyway i think he would say to some degree that we should probably stick around to do something about those things and that you know we shouldn't give in to again the speed of pro-mortalism uh, any, any mm -hmm. thoughts on that and uh, daily if you do as well yeah like so uh I know that some people think that, you know, it's kind of incoherent or inco at least inconsistent to be a kind of walking, talking pro-mortalist, right? Why are, why are you still here if you think that it's, um, but I think those people are wrong about that, right? I just think that um, it's going to depend what your pro-mortalism looks like. So, you know, you, you might think it would be better if all humans went extinct, but you might also think that you ceasing to exist is not the best way to pursue that goal, um, especially when you combine the position with antinatalism. You might think exactly as you were saying, that kind of activism towards Cartelian procreation would be a more productive way of putting your theory into action. Or you might be a pro-mortalist who thinks that death is good for the one who dies, but you might also think that that good need not be an immediate one. And so although I see the kind of what seems to be an obvious dissonance present when we see a walking, talking pro-mortalist, I just I think it depends on the, the details of the position. And when you combine it with antinatalism, and again, the details are needed, I can see how you can consistently hold those views and yet continue on. That seems entirely kind of fine and appropriate to me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm uh, Based on something you just said, I mean, you know, I don't know if you know this, but the most common argument that antinatalists receive back towards their antinatalism is, why don't you just go kill yourself? That that is what we hear time and time again. It's happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to to Daly. Uh, it's happened to all of us time and time again. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, given what you what you believe about promortalism and antinatalism, do you think people are hitting on something important when they say that, or are they just being jerks? Or what's your impression? Uh, of that? Uh, I I think it's pretty poor. It's pretty crude, right? Um, so as we've already said, there are like there are lots of ways of being a promortalist, antinatalist. Um, and that being kind of consistent with with choosing to continue on without getting kind of tangled up in logical inconsistency, right? So you could just think you're 
efforts are better spent in activism. It could be that your particular version of premortalism doesn't recommend ending one's own existence. Or, hey, you know what? It could be like just an irrational love of life and it's okay to be irrational. That's kind of fine. Um, and of course, there are also arguments for the claim that antinatalism doesn't get you to pro-mortalism, right? <laughs> and we've got to take those seriously. You've got to be intellectually humble enough to take those seriously. And I think that, you know, although I disagree, I think Benatar makes a really good case for that. Um, so I think people who say that are kind of not paying sufficient attention to the nuances of pro-mortalism and, and ways in which it can be consistent with continuing on. Um, it's also, you know, highly demanding of, of one being completely rational and, you know, behaving in ways consistent with all of their beliefs, which I think is a, a little bit unrealistic, um, given human psychology. And also, hey, maybe the positions um, don't collapse into one another after all, right? And there are very good arguments for that. So I think it's pretty poor to react in that way. Yeah, I agree with you. Thank you for that. All right, I have two more questions and then I'm going to hand it over to Daly. Um, so the first one is just a bit of like, your impression is sort of a bit of how pro-mortalism fits into some of the history of all this. So what I'm about to say, many will disagree with, and that's fine. Disagree with me in the comments below. Uh, pro-mortalism is one of these ideas that I think really scared antinatalists who started their antinatalism somewhere between, you know, the first release of Better Never to Have Been 2006, particularly because of the way Benatar uses it in Better Never to Have Been. Um, and let's say 2010, which was right before the antinatalist YouTube boom. And that's where I came in, you know, for the first time. Um, and that was uh, also slightly before papers like yours and, and Christopher Belshaw's emerging, making these types of claims. And right, just right before a lot of things started to change. Um, if you came into antinatalism again between 2006, 2010, you were witness to an antinatalism before a lot of other ideas started to be brought in, like promortalism, like ethylism, like the, the, the red button, the, the, a more symbiotic relationship with both veganism and the right to die atheism, as we've discussed. This was a, a time of a kind of more pure antinatalism, as I think many of that particular era would see. It, where you know we finally had Benatar, we were uh, you know moving away from whatever proto antinatalism is or environmentalist pre antinatalism, um, and you know it led to a it was a more narrow focus of what antinatalism is. But the way I see it, antinatalism has evolved since that time. It's matured, and part of that maturity is the growth of some of these tentacles into these different conversations, again, like promortalism. And that's why I think we're seeing a greater acceptance, you know, of things like promortalism, because as time goes on, this is becoming part of the identity of, of, of what antinatalism is. Um, and it's no, it's no longer making sense not to accept the, the relevance of this and, and, and the pushback to it, which is immense, by the way, uh, is starting to look more and more like denial. Um, to a large extent and, and passing the buck. I mean, it's, it's really interesting that, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to get you too into the drama of, of the antenatal world, but it's so fascinating to me that, you know, this is a, an accusation that's been leveled against antinatalism, but now a lot of antinatalists who are afraid of this concept have pushed it onto other forms of antinatalism. Like it's, you know, somehow that somehow our fault. Um, so again, you know, again, it's, it's, it's sort of coming from a more, you know, internal historical perspective, but do you have any thoughts on any, anything that I've just said? Uh, yeah, well, obviously you guys are much better versed in the kind of social history of antinatalism than I am, and um, particularly the activism side. 
But I mean, I agree that pro-mortalism is going to strike some folk as like really alarming, right? Especially if you take it that in holding it, you would need to do something horrifying to be consistent. As I said, I don't actually think that's true. Um, but I think it's also important to say that I don't think there's any kind of dishonesty necessarily in folk who claim to be antinatalists and not pro-mortalists. And that's for a few reasons, right? So there are all sorts of kind of cognitive biases that could explain why people are motivated to kind of block the move from one position to another, because, you know, that second position just seems so horrifying. Um, but also, you know, um, Benatar might be right. It, it could be completely consistent to be a compassion-based antinatalist uh, and not be a pro-mortalist. And I think in his replies to me, he makes a really good case for that. Um, we still disagree, but I'm not kind of close to the idea that, that I'm wrong, that there's a link between the two positions. Um, but I also really strongly agree with you. And this really is kind of the point of my more recent paper that if you're an antinatalist, particularly of a compassionate kind, it doesn't make any sense to not consider pro-mortalism as a natural ally of your position. It doesn't make any sense to take it that, you know, the position is not relevant or too fringe or whatever. And so even if you end up saying that the positions aren't linked, if you are an antinatalist, I think pro-mortalism is relevant to your theorizing and shouldn't be dismissed as ridiculous or fringe. I just think that that would be a mistake. Yeah, I mean, as time goes on, I, I, I think I agree with you more and more. I, I think that the um, if, uh, and this is sort of leading into my, my last question, you know, a lot of antinatalists get really upset with people when they start asking questions about pro-mortalism, suicide, the value of living their lives or the value of their lived experience because they feel, you know, those questions are kind of missing the point which is uh, not entirely false. They are kind of missing the point getting so wrapped up in life assessments because what we're really talking about is the ethics of starting lives of bringing lives mm -hmm. into existence. Mm -hmm. But to say that making life assessments is somehow not a perfectly rational psychological reaction to being confronted with, you know, coming into the harm of existence or have, you know, is, is I, again, I think something that antinatalists maybe need to get over a little bit. Like, mm -hmm. of course, people are gonna, are gonna make those kinds of assessments. Um, and I, I don't really have a question attached to that. I just think that that's, that's, that's a, I think that's a big part of what you kind of made me realize um, with, with your paper. And again, I, I sort of apologize because I realize this is a, this is, a, I've done a pretty poor job of responding to the first paper, but these are all the, these are all the thoughts Not that have all. come out of, of, yeah, of, sure. of reading yeah. that first one. And um, I really yeah. wanna thank you for that. Yeah. Oh, right. No, no, it's, it's been great. Yeah. Talk to you about it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm, I'm actually going to hand you over to, uh, to Daly and, uh, he's got some great questions, uh, about, about your second paper. So your second paper, better to return whence we came from 2022. Um, I would like to quickly read the abstract. I argue that David Benatar's antinatalism leads to pro-mortalism, the view that it is better to cease to exist because the human predicament as he describes it is a fate worse than death. Thus continued existence is such a predicament in such a predicament is not preferable to an exit form. I revisit my earlier argument for the claim that Benatar's 2006 asymmetry between pleasure and pain paved the way for pro-mortalism unless Epicureanism about death is ruled out. I replied to Benatar's response to that argument. Then I turned to Benatar's 2017 characterization of the, of the human predicament and suggest that that also leads to pro-mortalism. I respond to three arguments from Benatar that seek to block the move from our predicament to pro-mortalism. I conclude that if Benatar is right about the predicament we find ourselves in, it is better for most people return once they came. So 
Uh, Emma, so in the paper, uh, you discuss sort of two ways that Benatar's antinatalist position could lead to promortalism. And the first has to do with the asymmetry. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you know, lots of people think the asymmetry does not lead to promortalism, but you challenge this in the paper. Uh, could you maybe take us through that argument? Yeah, I'm sure. So I tell you that the controversial bit of the asymmetry is the absence of pleasure quadrant, right? The absence of pleasure is um, not bad. So Benatar wants to say it's not bad unless there's somebody for whom there's a deprivation. Um, And then you add in a fairly popular account of death upon which death is harmful because it deprives one of future goods one would otherwise have enjoyed had one not died. And so then you get to say, Benatar gets to say, that it's not bad that those who never get to exist don't experience the pleasures of life. But you also get to say that it is bad for somebody to cease existing. And that's because the absence of the pleasures of life for the person who dies would be a deprivation. Um, And it's that point that the absence of pleasure is bad when it involves a deprivation, which does the work of recommending continued non-existence for the currently non-existent, um, but it doesn't recommend bringing about non-existence for the already existent, right? So the asymmetry doesn't get you to promortalism if you think that death is a deprivation. Um, so I just think, well, why think that, right? So as I've already said, I'm, I'm pretty attracted to Epicureanism about death, um, a view that the person who dies is not harmed or deprived by their death. Now, if that were the correct view, then I take it that coupled with the asymmetry, promortalism would be fairly straightforwardly recommended, right? Um, so if death is not bad and we're not deprived by it, the path to promortalism is clear and can't be blocked by appeal to deprivation. And Benatar recognizes this in 2006 in the book, um, spends a little bit of time arguing against the Epicurean view of death, um, And so in 2012, I took on those arguments. I thought they didn't quite do what they needed to do. Um, Since then, Benatar has replied to me and in my new paper, I replied to him on those points. So my argument isn't that Epicureanism about death is the correct view, but I do think um, the onus is on Benatar to give us a little bit more of a robust discussion of it. Now he disagrees with me about that and about whether it really is his job to take Epicureanism off the table, um, but that's the state of play I take it between us. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I guess, can you tell us a little bit about what, what is Epicureanism? And uh, I, I guess just give us a quick uh, overview. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I take it that it's, I don't know much about the kind of history of the view, but I take it it's the view that um, one, the person who dies is not harmed by her death. Um, so death does not harm the one who dies. Uh, so that, yeah, that's basically it. So I, I take it that it's in direct opposition to the deprivation view of death, which says death is bad. Here's why death is bad, because one is deprived of future goods that one would otherwise have experienced had one not died. Um, Epicureanism just says death is not bad. Um, the quote is something like, when death is here, we are not. When we are here, death is not, right? Death is kind of nothing to us. Um, so one is not harmed by one's death. That's not to say that dying isn't you know, harmful. That can be um, very unpleasant. But um, one having died, one's death itself is, is not a harm to somebody. Right. Um, but on your view, uh, on Epicureanism, it's, we can still say that non-existence is better than existence, right? So, so in other words, Epicureanism is compatible with pro-mortalism on, on your view. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and that's what I think that if you're an Epicurean and you take compassionate antinatalism seriously, then I think you, you kind of naturally get yourself to a pro-mortalist position. And I think that, I think that makes sense. Yeah, I think a lot of deprivationists uh, at that point want to say, you know, how is this any different from our view? You know, when Epicureans start talking about uh, death being worse or like non-existence being worse than existence, or in this case, you know, for talking about more is a better, um, at that point, it almost seems like it's just, a. I think he's just said it's like a verbal dispute, like a mere verbal dispute. Do you agree with that? Or do you think that there are, <laughs> there's an important, uh, ah, there's still an important difference here between these views yeah. or... Yeah, I think, I mean, maybe I'm missing something, but it seems to me that the views are um, opposing views, right? You know, if you're a deprivationist, then what you're doing is giving an account of why death is bad, right? So the question you're answering is, why is death bad for the person who dies? And your answer is something like, well, because she could have experienced all these pleasures had she not died. Whereas if you ask an Epicurean, why is death bad for she who dies? The Epicurean will say, well, it isn't, right? I don't owe you an account of that because it's not bad at all, right? So I don't need to tell you um, why it is bad. So I take it that the starting assumptions for these two positions on death are radically different. The Epicurean says, look, this is, death isn't something that harms us. It's not something that's bad for us. The deprivation account says, it is something that's bad for us. And my job now is to tell you why it's because you're deprived of future goods. Right? So they, they seem to be very different positions. Is it on the Epicurean view that you're considering here, is, is there a reason to avoid death? So if, if non-existence, if we think that non-existence is worse than existence, does that give us a, a reason uh, to avoid death? Well, is, I don't is that, know. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it would depend on, on your, your other views and on nearby issues. So um, I'm not sure. I wouldn't want to speak for Epicureanism on that, but I, my sense is that if you think that death is not a harm, then you might not have any reason to avoid it. But I might be being a little bit too quick there because I've not thought about that. Um, it might be consistent with Epicureanism that you recognise that it's not harmful, but there are nevertheless reasons to delay it. I can see a, a position which can make sense. So, uh, yeah, so I think that if you're an Epicurean, it's probably open to you to be pro-delay or not, right? If you're not an antinatalist, for example, if you think that life's wonderful, um, then maybe you would have a position, uh, a reason to delay death, even though you recognize that death is not a harm. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but if you're an antinatalist, I think that's kind of much harder to make out. If you're an antinatalist and you're an Epicurean, then it seems to me that you've got less reason to delay death. Because, of course, if you delay death, then you're having this kind of horrific life experience. And if death isn't harmful, then what are you doing? Right? Why, why are you delaying it? Right. Thank you. Um, so I think at this point, it's important to uh, say that you're not actually arguing that, you know, if Benatar's antinatalism has this implication, like leads to pro-mortalism, that we should reject Benatar's antinatalism. So as you say in the paper, you know, you say my point was, uh, and it is only that Benatar's asymmetry leads to pro-mortalism, but that point was never put in the spirit of reductio. Did you want to say just a little bit more about that? You kind of touched on this before, but, um, you know, my guess is that a lot of people listening to this are going to think, 
you know, I'm just going to kind of assume that the point of this paper um, and other papers that you've written is that Benatar's antinatalism, you know, should be rejected because it has this kind of absurd, you know, what many people think anyway, is kind of a crazy implication. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Um, it's, uh, it's good for me to have the opportunity to be really clear about this. Now, I can speak from my co-author's view 10 years ago. That's possible his mind has since changed. But back then, it was his view that if Benatar's antinatalism got us to pre-mortalism, then that's a reductio of the view, right? Then clearly something's gone wrong in the view if that's the consequence. Um, and I disagreed with him about that, which is why the paper was, was not written in that spirit. I just thought it was an interesting theoretical consequence. Um, Maybe I have a pretty high tolerance for what folk might take to be bizarre views. I'm not sure. I, I don't find myself immediately thinking that pro-mortalism is so odd that any view which entailed it must be wrong. Um, and as I said, I've, I've not really thought about the plausibility of pro-mortalism kind of as an independent position, but it doesn't strike me as kind of obviously incorrect. Seems to me that, sure, it could be true. Um, and so if it is the consequence of antinatalism, I don't think that that's a strike against antinatalism. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't have clever things to say about why I don't think the move to pro-mortalism constitutes a reductio of antinatalism. I guess I just don't find that particularly alarming. Um, if you've already accepted antinatalism, which is pretty fringe and pretty controversial, it seems to me that pro-mortalism really isn't all that unsavory. But I realize that my intuitions are a little bit out of whack there with, the, with certainly in academia and in the kind of more activist community, people do seem to be really, you know, I know I don't want my position to lead to that, but I, I just don't find that particularly alarming. Pro-mortalism, sure, might be true, yeah. Right, and, and do you think that uh, pro-mortalism imply suicide because I think you uh, say uh, you have a kind of short discussion I think near the uh, beginning of the paper about you know how there are uh, well there are particular ways of dying let's say that you know could be mm -hmm. so awful right that uh, that can sometimes outweigh say the good of uh, ceasing to exist um, and then you also talk about maybe obligations to others and things like that. So there are these other regarding reasons, perhaps, to continue existing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, given that, do, do you think that it, there's a clear, like, does pro-mortalism get us to suicide, uh, straight to suicide? Or, you know, does it automatically, you know, imply suicide? Or do you think uh, these, it's not so, uh, the connection is not as tight as that? Yeah, no, I, I, don't, I don't think the connection is a logical one whatsoever. Um, I think it might be true that it's better for one not to exist without it being true that it's better for one to die by suicide. Um, I think it makes perfect sense to be a pro-mortalist who is against death by suicide, right? So, you know, all you need to do is add in another view, right? So if you thought that, you know, you had a particular religious belief that suicide would be so egregious that it would affect the kind of afterlife you'd be likely to enjoy, or if you believe that it would affect your relationship with God, or if you just think that suicide is morally egregious because of you know, the harm it inflicts on other people. So if you had one of those beliefs, whilst nevertheless maintaining that it would be better for you to no longer exist, then you're a pro-mortalist without being kind of pro-suicide. Um, but although I don't think there's a logical connection between those two views, I did move between those views fairly freely in my paper. And that's because the various ways of blocking that connection, which I've just outlined, are not available to Benatar, I take it. So he's clear in various 
places that although suicide is sometimes morally wrong, it's not always. Um, and when he discusses meaningless of our lives, he argues against what he calls the theistic gambit as a way of generating meaning. And so I don't think that he can appeal to any religious reasons for ruling out suicide. And also when he discusses suicide, he explicitly assumes there's no afterlife. And so that's why I think it's okay when we're talking about Benatar's position to treat pro-mortalism as implying that suicide is the best for us. But I don't think that there's a logical connection between them. I think you can be a pro-mortalist and you can also think that suicide is completely wrong and no one should do it or whatever. So no logical connection, but when we're talking about Benatar's position, I, I think it's um, theoretically legitimate to kind of link them up in the way that I did. Thank you. Um, and, and in the literature, do you think, uh, from what you've you know, read, and uh, that pro mortals and a suicide, do, do you think these views are typically distinguished in this way? Or do you think, or have you noticed sometimes people use pro mortalism uh, as almost synonymous with like pro suicide? Yeah. So, I, I haven't read very much on pro-mortalism except um, as, as part of the question of whether antinatalism leads to it. And there, I think there is a move, right? People don't distinguish the kind of, the legitimacy of being a pro-mortalist without kind of being pro-suicide. So in the Harmon paper, um, she says explicitly, you know, if life is so bad, then we should kill ourselves. Um, there's a review, I forget, who wrote it now um, and she, the way she talks is you know if, if antinatalism is true then you should kill yourself right so so there's not a kind of move to pro-mortalism and then a separate move to suicide that that kind of middle section is, is cut out so my sense is in my limited reading that um, pro-mortalism and suicide are linked but I, I think that they needn't be. And that's very much the way that it is in, within the community. And that's, again, right. one of the reasons why I thought this conversation was so important, because the two right. of you have a completely different impression of what pro-mortalism is than, right. that is, than is more actively you know, discussed within antinatal circles. Yeah, pardon me for jumping in again, but yes. So, so going back to the paper, um, you also argue, uh, in addition to the you know, stuff about the asymmetry, arguments about the asymmetry you also argued that benatar's view of the human predicament leads to pro-mortalism as well mm -hmm. so could you tell us what um just in a nutshell is benatar's view of the human condition right okay well i'll, I'll do my best to do this um some justice from my memory of the, of the 2017 book so uh, Venator thinks that life is awful, um, that's given a book-length defence in the human predicament, which I you know, really enjoyed in, in some sense of the word enjoy, of course. Um, and he's got several reasons for that. So he thinks that our lives are meaningless, at least from the perspective of the universe, and he thinks that that's tragic. I find that really compelling. Um, and he also thinks that the general quality of our lives is pretty appalling, right? So even those lives that we think, you know, pretty good lives, they're permeated by, you know, the inconveniences and discomforts of hunger and thirst and minor illness and psychological hurdles and, you know, losing our elders and so on. And then, of course, you know, many of us face the risk of truly horrifying fate. So severe or chronic illness and physical or sexual abuse, torture, murder and so on. And finally, all our lives end in death, and that's bad insofar as it deprives us of future goods um, and annihilation, which he understands as the kind of total and irreversible obliteration of a person. So I take it that that's the human condition. And um, all of those things constitute our lives, and, and that makes our lives pretty appalling. Yes. Um, 
So Benatar kind of argues that, you know, despite the fact that life is really quite terrible, um, death doesn't solve these problems. So like the problem of, you know, meaninglessness, though, of course, Benatar does believe that we have some kind of limited kind of meaning where Mm -hmm. we can. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't solve the problem of our mortality uh, Mm -hmm. and so on. And sort of in this connection, you have an example in the paper that uh, I quite like. Uh, It's about an unhappy relationship, an unhappy relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell us what that example is and what you think it shows? Yeah, um, so this is in response to the idea that hastening one's death is not a solution to the human predicament and so not recommended by it. And that's because death is part of that very predicament. But I guess it seems to me that ceasing to exist needn't get you out of all dimensions of the human predicament to be a reasonable response to it, or or even the best response to it. And so I I draw this analogy, which I hope shows um, that partial solutions can be both reasonable and the best option. And the analogy is um, Jill is in an unhappy relationship, um, but soon she's going to move across the world and that relationship will end. And, you know, I just ask you to accept that that's that's definitely going to happen. Um, And the badness of the relationship is constituted by kind of arguments on abuse, lack of affection, but also the trauma of ending that relationship. And so part of Jill's unhappy predicament is the trauma of the breakup. But I take it that the trauma of the breakup is not a reason not to bring the breakup forward. Um, Because in doing so, now she's not going to solve her predicament, she's not going to solve it because you know, the trauma of the breakup is part of that predicament. But if we agree that Jill ought to break up with her partner, then I don't think it's any argument against us doing so that that wouldn't free her from all dimensions of her predicament, right? Namely the trauma of the breakup. But look, it would free her from the arguments and the verbal abuse and the lack of affection. And that's true, even if it's also true that in ending the relationship early, Jill would deprive herself of the limited goods of that relationship. And so um, in case it's not clear yet, the analogy is supposed to be this. Although death might be part of our predicament, that doesn't mean that it can't be at least a partial solution to the predicament as a whole, right? So if life is as awful as Benatar says it is, then ceasing to exist might be best, even whilst recognizing that that's not a cost-free solution so just because that's part of our solution uh, of our predicament doesn't mean that it's not an appropriate uh way to respond to that predicament that's what i think yes thank you yeah and i found that really quite persuasive myself um so many people think the uh you already explained to us the deprivation account of death's badness or i guess goodness um, and many people think that's kind of, you know, roughly the correct view, uh, correct account of uh, you're not among those people. But um, uh, so the idea, again, roughly is like when death is bad, when it's bad, it's bad because it deprives the individual of uh, goods that they would have had had they not died at that time. Um, so Benatar, to understand, like while it, Benatar accepts deprivationism, but believes it's not really the whole story, like it's not the whole of what makes death bad for us. Um, So Benatar thinks that in addition to depriving one of future goods, that is bad because it obliterates, it annihilates the individual. Um, But you argue that in the paper that even if annihilation 
is bad in the way that Benatar suggests, Benatar's views still lead to pro-mortalism. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, um, so I find the material on annihilation in the human predicament, again, um, extremely compelling. And I think I agree that if you think death is a harm, it makes sense to think that annihilation is a separate harm too, um, I buy those arguments. And Benatar appeals to this to block the path to pro-mortalism by saying that annihilation is something that we ought to delay. And that's because one cannot get over it. Um, and I guess uh, I just don't see why the fact that we can't get over it gives us a reason to delay it. So if our lives were overall good, but ended in annihilation, then fine, it would probably be worth putting off. Um, but if there are no good lives, and if whilst not annihilated, things are very bad, I don't see why it would be good to delay the inevitability of a bad, which would relieve us of other bads. Um, so like, think back to Jill, right? So imagine she never gets over that breakup, right? And she knows this when she's deliberating over whether to end the awful relationship, she knows that that trauma of her breakup is something she's never gonna get over. You might ask, well, does that give her a reason to delay the breakup? Bearing in mind that breaking up gets her out of all of these other bads. And I'm just not sure that it does once we take into account how awful the relationship is. And um, Kirsten Eggerstrom, so she reviews the human predicament and she makes a similar point. Um, and I, I wrote this down because it's, it's a cool quote. She says, look, if annihilation is going to be a bummer, no matter when it occurs, one may as well die early to avoid the future disvalue associated with a poor quality of life. So I guess I just don't quite see why it is best delayed, given that it would get one out of the other bads of life. Yeah, that was my point there. Right, and, and the Eggerstrom quote, um, I mean, I suppose Benatar would uh, object to the no matter when it occurs. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, Eggerstrom says, you know, it's going to be a bummer no matter. Well, I mean, it, it will be a bummer no matter when it occurs. But this, the kind of implication there is that it really doesn't matter when it occurs, uh, I, I think. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, as you were saying, Benatar thinks that it's good to or we should delay annihilation. And I just wanted to know if you had any thoughts on the, uh, the example that Benatar discusses in the human predicament. It's a uh, it's an example from Francis Cam, and uh, mm -hmm. it's the limbo man example. And you know, this is the person that this is a quote prefers putting off a fixed quantity of goods of life by going into a coma and returning to consciousness at a later point to have them. And I guess Benatar thinks that to the extent that we share, you know, this limbo man's preference to delay these uh, goods. This is kind of best explained by, uh, this is because we think it's good to delay annihilation. And, uh, you know, the thought is like the deprivation is gonna be the same either way. Um, mm -hmm. Did you have any thoughts on this example? And I mean, because for, for me, it was actually the most uh, compelling thing in that section in the human predicament, because my, my view too is that death is not itself, there's, there's no additional, you know, I'm just, a kind of a simple, you know, deprivationist. So I don't, uh, I, I don't necessarily agree with uh, Benatar on the annihilation stuff. But, but that example I thought was quite uh, interesting. And so I, I wanted to just have your, uh, hear some of your thoughts on that example and whether it uh, affects your view in any interesting way. Yeah. Um, so I think it would affect my view 
if it were true that limbo man's preference is the right one but I, I guess I want to say two things about that the first is that it's not at all obvious to me that that preference is intuitive it's not one that I have I mean I've already said that you know my intuitions are a bit out of whack sometimes um but I just don't have the intuition that I would I would rather delay things and you know wake up and have that same amount of goods um and I also can't make much sense of that intuition if one takes really seriously the idea that human lives are appalling um, but second, let's say that, you know, I, I'm just weird um, and that you actually talk to a load of people and lots of folk have that preference. And so we need to explain that preference. And one way we can explain it is is by appeal to, you know, annihilation being a separate bad. Um, so I take it that most folk have a pre-theoretical gut feeling that death is bad and something they'd like to delay. And they might find themselves with that limbo man intuition. But, you know, huge parts of Benatar's works are devoted to explaining why various intuitions or preferences we have are failing to track how rotten our lives are. And so I think that, you know, and I've not thought much about this, but I think it, the limbo man intuition that lots of people might have might be explainable by appeal to the ways we explain other preferences that express a love of life or a desire to have one's legacy stretched as far into the future as possible and so on. So I think I would reach for a kind of psychological debunking explanation of the limbo man intuition before reaching for the idea that annihilation is a bad best delayed even when lives are appalling. I think that just sounds much more plausible to me to kind of explain why people have that intuition rather than say that this shows this kind of deep metaphysical fact that annihilation is something that, that we should delay even whilst recognizing that human lives are appalling. Um, well, I guess that's what I think about that. I, I wasn't really moved very much by that discussion. Right. Okay. Thank you. Um, so Amanda, sorry, that's all the questions I had. Oh, no, that's excellent. Much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Daly. Thank you so much, Emma, uh, for all of that. That was absolutely fascinating. Um, I just want to quickly touch on, um, you know, Benatar's responses to you, uh, both of them, both Every Conceivable Harm, a further defense of antinatalism by David Benatar, and also Misconceived, um, why these further criticisms of, of antinatalism fail. What did you think of his responses? I mean, just some simple, simple question, really. But I mean, yeah, what, what, what do you think that there's still more unanswered questions. Do you think that there will be more back and forth between the two of you eventually? <laughs> well, um, so in his 2012 response, I found what he said about the relationship between antinatalism and Epicureanism a bit unsatisfactory. Um, but that was great for me because it gave me a kind of starting point to, to write this new paper. Um, but in his more recent response, Benatar agrees that antinatalism combined with Epicureanism could lead to pro-mortalism. I don't think he goes as far as saying that it definitely does, but he, he says that it could. Um, and so I guess the disagreement between us uh, is, you know, perhaps not a particularly deep one. I think we agree on a lot of stuff. And as, as I've said, I find his work really compelling. Um, but the disagreement is going to come down to how much the burden is on him to take the Epicurean view of death off the table. And I take it he thinks that he should do something in that regard, right? Um, you know, he does talk about it in the book, um, in both books. And I guess I think that he should do more um, and that his arguments on the view are not terribly persuasive. But as he says in, in one of his replies, look, asking for proof that Epicureanism is incorrect is asking for too much. And I agree, right? So very rarely are philosophical positions proven false or true. 
But it's still my view that the arguments Benatar wields against Epicureanism about death are a bit quick. Um, and they also appeal to things that he shouldn't appeal to, right? Like the position being counterintuitive. I don't think he should appeal to that given where he's coming from. Or the position being such that proponents of it wouldn't be bothered by pro-mortalism. He says that. He's like, well, you're an Epicurean, then you won't be bothered by pro-mortalism. And I'm like, sure, that's fine. <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean that the position doesn't lead to it. Um, but as I've said a couple of times already, I do think that if there's a case for compassion-based antinatalism not to lead into pro-mortalism, Benatar gives it its very best rendering, right? So I think his responses are very good, um, but I am not convinced. All right. Well, uh, Emma, this has been absolutely fascinating. Um, what are you currently working on? Uh, well, I'm on maternity leave at the moment, so I'm not working as normal. But what I was working on before my son was born and what I'll go back to are um, the projects I mentioned earlier to do with delusional belief and conspiratorial ideation. That's going to uh, take the next couple of years, I think. Excellent. Uh, do you believe that the subject of antinatalism will continue to play a role uh, in your future works and uh, pro-mortalism along with that? Yeah, I, I'm certainly open to it. You know, every time I, I write something on it, I think, that'll be the last one and then and then you know something comes in my inbox and I end up sort of going back to it so I'm not sure I have much more to contribute but I do find the topic like incredibly engaging I wouldn't rule out another swim in these waters I'll say that excellent well, that's excellent news uh where can people find you on the internet and how can people best support your work um I have a website emmasullivanvisit.com and that's got a list of my publications and current activities on it uh, a lot of my work is open access which means you don't need to have an institutional affiliation to get a hold of it but if any of your listeners wanted to read something they couldn't get they should just drop me an email and I'll send them a copy excellent thank you so much uh and daily how can people find you and do you have any videos or anything coming up soon that you'd like to talk about uh before we close up Thanks. Uh, well, I have a channel. It's called Daily Negativity. Uh, I also have a channel called uh, Pessimism Daily, where I basically just share like pessimistic quotations. Uh, do I have anything planned? I have ideas, but no definite thing at the moment. Okay, brilliant. Uh, Daily, thank you so much for being my co-host today. It was wonderful to work with you again. Yep, thank you. Uh, and Emma, thank you so much for being our guest today on the Exploring Antinatalism podcast. Thanks so much for having me, both of you. It's been really fun to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. The pleasure's been all thank ours. You. To learn more about the work of Emma Sullivan Bissett, please visit her website at www.emmasullivanbissett.com and follow her on Twitter. Also make sure to read both of her papers discussed in this episode, 2012's Better No Longer To Be, The Harm Of Continued Existence, and this year's Better To Return Whence We Came, Links below. And also don't forget to subscribe to Daily Negativity on YouTube, as well as his second channel, Pessimism Daily. You can find both links in the description. Thank you for listening to the Exploring Antinatalism podcast. This has been Amanda Oldfansukanik. You can find me on the YouTube channel, Antinatal Wolf. Keep up with my daily antinatalist news updates at Antinatal News on Twitter. Please follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, 
Buzzsprout, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon.com, RSS feed, and so many other platforms. Email me at exploringantinatalism at gmail.com. The podcast website, www.exploringantinatalism.com, was designed by the amazing Visions Noirs. Please follow him at www.bionoir.com and also follow him on Instagram. Logo art by the amazing Life Sucks. Subscribe to him on YouTube and check out his merch at www.etsy.com slash shop slash Life Sucks Publishing. Music by the wonderful I Doubt It. Subscribe to him on YouTube. And check out our collaborative project along with our friend Ethel WV, The Right to No Longer Exist, which includes the podcast, The Right to No Longer Exist, A Right to Die podcast. All the best and bye for now.